Into the Archives with Peter Fleming. A quest for the lost children's television classics of Peter Fleming. Presented by me, Peter Fleming. This week, Animals. Hello there, my friends. Peter Fleming here, and I... Whoa, get down there. <laughs> I'm pleased to see you too, but don't lick my face. <laughs> Just my little joke there. I, I, I'm sure you wouldn't. Well, I've wrangled something marvellous for you today. An episode all about my BBC programmes inspired by fur and feather. Well, not just fur and feather, scales, horns, gills, anything really, just animals, general animals. And here's hoping we'll discover some of these programmes found loving homes and weren't simply released into the wild and shot, as I've often feared. It should be quite a lot of fun. You might think I'd promised to talk about a different subject at the end of last week, but I suddenly remembered that for legal reasons it might be best not to. That's if I did say I was going to talk about it, and I certainly don't recall doing so. Well, now that's all clear, come out of your shells, giddy up, and let's milk the televisual udder. This is... Peter Remembers. Well... Working with animals in television wasn't without its perils. Uh, naturally, after Lulu the Elephant defiled the Blue Peter studio, people tend to assume our main fear in production was animals doing their business on camera, but that's not quite right. The real trouble, even before then, was that any actor working with animals knew they had someone to blame if they were caught short. I remember the set of Into the Pigsty in 1965 was far more of an actor's sty by the end. The worst thing was, even though we knew it was mostly the actors doing, the pigs still got the blame. I suppose we held them to a higher standard because we knew they were intelligent. That said, recent experience has taught me some varieties of pig mess can be harder and more traumatic to clean up than even Martin Jarvis's. It really was filthy. Uh, much cleaner was 1968's A Dog and His Boy, in which viewers enjoyed young Charlie learning how to care for his new Labrador, Harry. It was designed to make children without pets feel as if they had one of their own, and it certainly worked for me. I could feel all the joys of owning a dog during filming, and I've, I've never had one before or since. Well, I had a guide dog for a few years, but uh, turned out I wasn't blind. I had to give it back. Always wondered how it happened, really. Uh, but, but this programme posed a problem of its own, as our Harry kept misbehaving. In the middle of a take, he'd suddenly run off and instinctively go to the rescue of someone in desperate need in the immediate area. They rescued babies from fires, pulled a family trapped in their car out of a canal, and on one occasion foiled an entire criminal syndicate. We managed to capture it all on camera, and it was thrilling to watch. But it wasn't the programme we were trying to make, so uh, just cut all that stuff out. One programme where the animals gave us no trouble at all was Departed Feathered Friends in 1970, all about the dodo. Uh, no animals to watch, of course, so uh, pretty tedious television. I came up with it when I first learned the BBC had been wiping programmes and reusing the tapes. I thought perhaps I could get it designated a protected series or something, but uh, no such luck. But it did lead me on to the idea of looking at extinct species more broadly, when the following year I made my landmark series, Cornucopia. 
That followed a fictitious Victorian naturalist as he catalogued an array of species that we'd completely made up. The idea was to make children think about all the variety in the world that we might be missing, so we let our imaginations fly, you know. Geese that grew on trees in bunches, pond whales who used their blowholes to become a natural garden sprinkler, and printing press butterflies who could form words on their wings to speak to people. Wondrous creations. The real challenge there was just for our design team, how to make them. But in the end, it was a real testament to what you could achieve with just rubber, cardboard, paint, and good lighting. And geese, and butterflies, and, uh, and a dwarf sperm whale... Uh, a couple of cows. I mean, we got all sorts of animals in, really. Uh, absolutely wrecked healing studios. Never let us back in. Well, uh, I was very happy with the series, and there might be one or two strays still out there for all these programmes. They were sold abroad quite widely, after all. So if you think you've spotted any out in the field, get in touch. There'll be a little more on Cornucopia very shortly. But first, why not think about giving a treat to the animals in your life? with this enticing commercial message. The Peter Fleming Pet Grooming Service gets your animals spick and span in minutes. Well, hours, but that's still minutes. Peter learned a lot making the Immaculate Menagerie and will happily comb and shave your cats, wax your goldfish and brill cream your rabbit. And don't worry if you live on a farm. Peter masterminded the fabulous field too. Now you can have your pigs polished, your goats sanded, and your cows turpentined. I'll even fluff your turkeys. Prices start at just £85 an animal. Or for farmyard customers, a full basket of bread, cheese and milk. Any produce at all. I'm just very hungry. The next five customers will receive a complimentary shampooing for a sheep of your choice. It doesn't even have to be one of yours. Warning, Peter is not qualified to handle any animal safely. Employ his services at your animal's own risk. Get your animals touched up today! Really do recommend that service, you know. Brighten up your animals' lives. Though I should just reiterate that disclaimer from the end and also point out that I've unfortunately had to withdraw the pig polishing service after discovering my homemade polish has side effects including, but not limited to, melting and bursting. But now, as promised, let's look at 1972's Cornucopia from a different angle, as we delve into Peter's private collection. Well, in front of me now is a full set of the collectible cards we released to promote the series. They came in boxes of Weetabix, I think, and we designed a card for each species, so 50 in all. It's all here, you know, printing press butterflies, the fire-furred toad, the red-breasted turnip lizard, that was a favourite of mine. Lovely things to look at. And uh, building the collection became an obsession for a lot of adults as well as children. Uh, actually, there's a, a funny story about that. Uh, Edward Heath was negotiating with the president of the National Union of Mine Workers, uh, Joe Gormley. And Heath knew they were both collecting the cards. So he actually tried bartering with some of his own to try and soften the government's stubborn refusal of a pay rise. It very nearly worked, too, except Heath refused to part with his five-bottomed mammoth, which was the only one Gormley still needed. But Heath put his foot down and said, If I can't have a full set, no one can. And so the talks collapsed, and that is what caused the miners' strike of 1972. Sorry about that. 
Uh, moving on. Uh, here is another programme I'd very much like to get hold of again with today's delightful dip into the audio archive. Audio archive. Well, today I've one of my most innovative programmes to share with you. The Two Little Horses. One of the only times I found myself working with puppets. Uh, the titular horses, Clippity and Clop, had each enjoyed life as a brown sock, but were now employed far more creatively on the hands of an obliging production assistant. And, in what can only be described as an imaginative frenzy, I decided we should make a programme that featured no human speech at all. The children would watch the horses and the images on screen, listen to the music and the sounds they were making, and they would have to decide for themselves what the story really was. And this now is the only footage currently known to survive, which came back to me a couple of decades ago now from Australia. What did you think was going on? I'll give you a clue. It's worse than that. Wonderful hearing it again, though. You know, for three whole weeks, that was what children across Britain saw lasting every night before they went to bed. <laughs> we actually made ten episodes in total, but uh, unfortunately, three weeks into broadcast, uh, the controller of BBC One tuned in. It's always the last thing you wanted if you were making a programme. The whole series was axed. But not before BBC Enterprises had sold the whole lot on film to ABC Television, who mistakenly thought the programme was a late-night horror series for adults. <laughs> so the whole thing was broadcast down there before they threw their copies away. But I'm able to play you that footage because it was cut out before transmission by the Australian government censors. On the downside, it's just the sound that exists, none of the pictures they must have realised at the last minute they couldn't cut the sequence altogether as it wouldn't make sense on screen for Clippity to have just suddenly turned inside out. I suppose they reasoned it would be a bit more acceptable to have it silent, but uh, I have to say, remembering the visuals, uh, I think it could only have made the problem, as they saw it, immeasurably worse. Uh, well, let's make our way back from Australia now so we can chart the progress of my global archive expedition and read some of your own correspondence in... Messages from Beyond. Well, before we look at the expedition, I have a letter here that's come in from Sarah in Lincoln, who enclosed a very generous £5 donation. Thank you for that, Sarah. Uh, she also writes, Dear Peter, Regarding the French letter you received from Rochelle last week... Ah, yes, yes. 
I will be able to provide a translation as I speak English and Italian. Uh, ah, and my great-aunt, who lives in Turin, speaks Italian and French. If I send her the French, she'll be able to translate it to Italian for me to translate back into English for you. Best wishes, Sarah. It might work, I suppose. All right, Sarah, I'll send you Rochelle's letter and look forward to hearing from you. Oh, and I should say, the very day last week's programme went out, I received a letter and a stamped addressed envelope from Roger near Chichester, uh, just like uh, Gemma in Chichester had sent the week before. Uh, I won't uh, recount it all, but uh, suffice to say, he suggested they go for a walk and get an ice cream like old times. Lovely. Uh, now, uh, Gemma and Roger, I forwarded your details on to each other as requested straight away. I, I hope you've received them as, uh, well, I, I did add a note to each one saying to... Let me know once it arrived and, uh, and if it all worked out. But I, uh, I didn't hear from either of you in the four days I was able to stay at my last accommodation before I left to escape all the flies. So I've, uh, I've been a little concerned. Uh, uh, just do let me know uh, whether you've received it all and, uh, and if you've any idea where copies of programmes might be and so on. Uh, don't forget about me, will you? <laughs> uh, hopefully hear from you soon. Uh, well, uh, with that little notice done, Let's check my fundraising progress on the Travel Totalizer. Now, the target for the expedition remains at £500, and with Sarah's handsome donation, I can confirm the amount raised so far is... minus £345. It could be worse, you know. As of yesterday, I owe a lot in compensation to the first customer of my pet grooming service. You see, uh, six hours ago, it was uh, minus 700. I've managed to work quite a lot of it off. Uh, so the five pounds are much appreciated, Sarah. Oh, actually, I see you want 15 pounds for the translation. All right, minus 360, then. Why bother sending me the fiver if you... Oh, never mind. Uh, well, if you listening at home would like to contribute in any form... Here's the address to get in touch. Peter Fleming, apologetically scrubbing the pigsty, Pommelbury Farm, Todmorden, T... Um, well, if you just write on the envelope to uh, follow the smell, that should reach me. Messages from Beyond. That's about all we've got time for on Into the Archives this week, but join us again next time when I'll be examining my 1969 series, Release the Dinosaurs, and asking just how big a role it played in that year's storming of the Natural History Museum. Until then, my friends, keep up the search, keep in touch, and stay tuned. Into the Archives was presented by Peter Fleming. His archivist and producer of the programme is Tom Burgess. Music and sound were found in a skip in Made Avail by Peter Fleming and remastered by Tom Burgess. The Two Little Horses was written, produced and directed by Peter Fleming. The horse puppets were operated by Margot Hayhoe and the giant father horse was portrayed by Stephen Thorne. His 42 fangs and 20 claws were built by Shawcraft Models. The clip was used with the kind permission of Damien Cooley Drawl and remastered by Tom Burgess. The Daleks were created by Terry Nation. This program was a Peter Fleming production for conservation. Please protect it with your life. <laughs>